Hopefully you have your Bibles open. We're going to continue our study in the book of Romans and uh, the great chapter 8. Uh, we, uh, this is just a wonderful, wonderful chapter and uh, uh, a wonderful uh, portion of this chapter that we're studying this morning where we get many of our uh, favorite verses. Uh, a lot of verses in this section that we um, draw strength from. A lot of verses in this section that we build our lives on and we um, gain courage from. And so it's a, this is just a great chapter to be going through with you. Two weeks ago, last week we had Bible in the schools here, and that was a huge blessing for us as a body. But two weeks ago, if you were with us, you would know that we were studying verse uh, 28, a well-known verse, the verse as it, as it reads, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those, to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. And we talked last week about this, or two weeks ago, about this verse that uh, for those who love God, for those who are called, God is working all things for the good. And this comes as great news. It comes as great news to us in the midst of a broken world. It comes as great news to us and, and, and in a real timely fashion. You know, I think about the school shootings this past week. I think about the, the deaths, uh, the deaths that some of you have experienced, you know, the Bryan community in particular. You know, February tends to be a hard month for people who suffer with depression. Uh, this is just a hard month at times, with it being dark and cold, and not today, but... Uh, you know, normally. And so it's real timely, real timely that as we open up the Scriptures and as we're reading together and as we're learning together and walking together through the book of Romans that we come to this passage of God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, those who are called. And if you remember two weeks ago, one of the ways that we started as we were looking through the text, we started with the first phrase there, in verse 28, this phrase, and we know that Paul here, is, is, as he starts this promise, he's telling us this is something that we know. And if you remember from two weeks ago, I just, just touched on the reason that we can know that God works all things together for the good is that there's two giant bedrock principles that we're going to look at today. And the reason that we can know that, those two giant bedrock principles, is that we know that God works all things together for the good because God is sovereign and He's good. And we are going to see that today in our text. You see, verse 29 and 30 ground the promise of verse 28. And what that means is it gives us the how or the why. How or why can we know that God works all things together? And he's going to tell us. Paul is in the middle of an argument this morning that he's telling us why or how or what is the basis, what is the basis upon we can know that verse 28 is true. Now, I want to pause. I want to pause and give a little bit of a word of caution as we 
get into our text this morning. These words that we will read and study together this morning are pretty controversial in church circles. And so there's kind of three things that I want you to know uh, right from the beginning as we get into this text and as we dive into this text. And the first thing I want you to know is that the name of our church is Signal Mountain Bible Church, right? And so one of the hallmarks of our church is that we want to be a church that teaches and preaches God's Word and that we're standing on God's Word and that actually, as Gary tells us very often, that we are letting God's Word stand above us. We're standing below God's Word, that that's our position. And so when we come to hard texts, when we come to hard truths in the Bible, we stand under those uh, and not above those. It also means that as we are committed to teaching and preaching verse by verse through the Bible, that we are going to hit hard text head on. And this morning is one of those mornings for some of you that this may be a hard and difficult text. The second thing I want you to know is that this morning we're going to look at Paul's argument. Paul's argument this morning, like I just said, is that verse 28 is grounded by verse 29 and 30. So what we're not doing this morning is getting all into the ins and outs of how is someone saved. Now, that's not me chickening out, but we're going to, in the weeks or maybe months ahead, when we get to Romans chapter 9, we will have plenty of time to completely unpack these things and to dive into because that's where Paul does it. And so as a Bible church committed to, to preaching the word verse by verse, we're going to go in the order that Paul gives us. So, so today, we will touch on it a little bit, and, and you'll see why it's important, but we're going to really uh, hopefully get the meaning that Paul wants us to get from this text. The third thing I want you to know is that this is a place, hopefully you will find that this is a place that no matter if you uh, disagree on um, some of these issues, that hopefully you find this is a place where you can uh, wrestle and reason together uh, with God's Word. Um, I think it's really important. Uh, we, we view that it's a, it's a, this should be a safe place to do that, that we should be extending grace to one another as we're looking at some of these harder things. Uh, Gary and I were talking earlier this week, and he, uh, he, he has a very nice uh, metaphor, and he, he talked about that all of us are packing our theological suitcases. And that all of us, when we pack those suitcases, there are things that are hanging out of it. Socks, shirts, those sort of things. And we have two options. We are either comfortable that there are things that are kind of hanging out of that suitcase because we're not going to know everything until we get to heaven, or we cut away the garments that are hanging out. And, and I, think, I think the approach that, that God would have us to, to, to have is that we're just going to be comfortable here with there are going to be some things that are hanging out of the suitcase. Uh, and so as we go through this morning and talk about some of these things that are difficult to some, not difficult to understand, but sometimes difficult to reason and sometimes difficult emotionally, that I just want us to know um, these things. I also just want to give a side note right up front, and I do this every time I teach or preach on this passage uh, or passages like this. I say a couple things in the beginning because inevitably somebody catches me afterwards and they will um, accuse me of something that I did not say. So the thing I want you to know in the beginning, number one, 
we wholeheartedly believe, and if I say that, I'm speaking for Gary as well, believe in human responsibility, that we are responsible for our sin as human beings. Wholeheartedly believe that. With everything in my being, I believe that, that I am responsible for my sin. Number two, I believe in John 3.16. Whoever, I believe in God's word. I believe that call, that whoever believes in him will be saved, not might be saved. Whoever puts their trust in Christ will be saved. I hope you know if you've been here long enough, uh, and some of this is witnessed by my wife going uh, on the trip that Steve mentioned earlier, uh, we believe in missions. Uh, and uh, we love missions and believe in missions with everything that we're in, and we believe in evangelism. Uh, you know, if you have noticed, if you've been here, Gary and I have tried to keep evangelism at the forefront of our minds um, so that we will weekly and daily be looking up for opportunities to witness to somebody in hopes that they would um, trust in Christ as their Savior. So, all that out of the way, that's the un- no, here's the unpause button. Uh, we're we're going to dig into this text. And, and, and this is a vital text for us. And, and w- one of the reasons it's a vital text is uh, Gary and I got an email from a pastor's group here on the mountain uh, after the school shootings that asked, if something like that happened here, um, would we be willing uh, to go to the school and to help counsel and to help uh, with kids and things like this? And of course, we said absolutely we'd be willing to do that. But I also view that it's, it, it's, it's my job, it's Gary and, and my job as a pastor um, to prepare you for catastrophe, to prepare you for times in your life where the, the bottom falls out, for time in your life when uh, it seems like everything around you is crumbling. It's our job to do that. And the best way to do that is to preach and teach God's Word. And so this morning is just vital in the life of our church. And, 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 you know, I was thinking as we were singing and I, as I was hearing you all sing so loudly uh, the song Stronger and a mighty fortress is our God that, you know, some of you are going through some things that are difficult. And so I'm encouraged that Paul wrote this letter and I'm encouraged that we have the opportunity to look at this text this morning and to unpack this text this morning so that you will know and so that you will be ready or that you will be encouraged this morning if you are in the midst of suffering. So today, the argument here in the text is is pretty clear and plain, and there's two big things that we're going to look at. And remember, he is grounding the verse, all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And I've already told you what the two things we're going to be looking at this morning are, but I want to put them this way, and then we'll unpack them. First is that God's promises are sure, because he is the one who brings the promises to fruition. God's promises are true and sure because the sovereign God of the universe is the one who brings the promises to fruition. Secondly, we're going to see that God's promises are good because he is actively accomplishing his will in us to conform us to the image of his son. So let's dig in. Let's dig in and let's dig in and start with this idea that all things work together for the good because God is sovereign and he is in control. Note from the very beginning of verse 29 
that it says for. This is how we know for or because that Paul is grounding this argument here. And the argument is, is that what God is doing will come to pass. Now, what we're getting ready to look at in the text, some have uh, labeled the, the golden chain. Have you all heard this, this language? Uh, the, the golden chain, where we start with foreknowledge and end with glorification. That this is the golden chain of, of salvation. And uh, that's good. It's good. It's not wrong. But we also have to notice that as we look at this chain, there are some things in here that are missing. Um, for example, I'll give you two of them that Paul talks about. One that he talks even in this chapter is, nowhere in the golden chain do we have adoption. Our adoption as sons and daughters. Nowhere in this section, in this golden chain, as we have labeled it, do we have regeneration. I simply point this out to mean that what Paul is not doing in this chapter at this point, is laying out all of the steps of salvation. He's not doing that. He's pointing us to something bigger. And so we've got to get our minds around that he's doing something. He's pointing us to, a, he's pointing us to something different, not bigger. That's a wrong use of language there. But he's, he's pointing us to something different than that. He's using this to point us to something. And what he's using this to do is to point us to God's, God's control. God's sovereignty. And before we jump into looking at this, I want you to notice a few things here uh, grammatically. And you can, you can help me out here. Just a quick reading of this. For those, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also Glorified, And so who is the subject of the verbs? Who is the one who is foreknowing, calling, justifying, predestining? Who is this? God. That we see from this text that God is doing something. God is the actor. He is acting here. Something else we need to notice. What is the tense of the verb? And I'm not talking about, you don't have to go all into the Greek. You know, they're translating it well. But notice that the tense of the verb lead us to the conclusion that these things have happened. Right? That's what it means when we look and it says that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified. And lastly, grammatically, one of the things that's important for us to pick up in this section so that we come to the right understanding of what is going on here is who is being acted upon? Those. <laughs> Notice the word that is not used is some. Right? That would, that would create a very different text here. Some who he foreknew, he also predestined. That there is this, what we get from this is that there is this rock solid certainty, God is acting, God is doing something, what he is doing is coming to pass, or has come to pass, or will come to pass, and what he is doing, and what the, whatever he is doing, and whatever he is creating, whatever he is acting, is coming to pass on a group of individuals, on a group of people, in which, from this text, we see, and other texts throughout the scriptures, that it will happen. 
Now, one commentator on this passage um, did something, and, and as I was reading it, I thought, man, I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, and that is he started backwards and worked his way forward. And I think it was very helpful, at least in my mind, and you may say that's not helpful at the end, and so it just could be my weird mind that that was helpful. But I want to start backwards and move forward, and, and hopefully we'll understand what is going on here. So if we start backwards, starting in verse 30, with the last clause here, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so the end goal of what is going on here is glorification. And if you remember when we looked at verse 23, let's read verse 23 again. It says, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for what? For the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And remember when we talked about this, we talked about that this is the the final state, our full adoption. In some sense, we've been adopted, but we're not as we will be when we're in glory. And we use this word then, this, this word glorification, that we will be like Him in glory. And notice that it says, those that will be like Him in glory, those who will be glorified are those who have been justified. And if you've been with us through this whole series, you remember in chapter 3 we talked about justification. Justification, we're made right. And remember in chapter 3, Paul tells us that the only way that we can be made right before God is through faith. And that faith is in Jesus Christ who becomes our righteousness. That we can't do it on our own. That God made a way. So those who are glorified are those who have been justified through faith based on the work of Christ by God. So not only that, but we see from this text that those who are, who are justified are those who have been called. And, and I think it's easy to see from the context, there's a type, when we use this word call, there's a type of calling that's in view. Let me tell you the type of calling that is not in view. The type of calling that is not in view is something that um, Gary or I would do from this pulpit where we would say, we would give out the gospel call, come and be saved. This outward calling, this outward calling that I would even hope this morning, if you're here and you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus, there's this outward call that goes out and it's going out to you today. You can be reconciled to God. But that's not the calling that's in view here. The calling that's in view here, based on the context, is the inward call in the heart that awakens our spirit to who Jesus is. Some pastors use the illustration, when God called Lazarus, when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, there was no way he was staying there. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, that was an effectual call. Lazarus came forth. And if you're a believer, we all remember the day or time, right? When maybe a preacher gave a call, maybe it was a call we had heard a thousand times, but something on the inside was suddenly birthed and awakened in us and something new happened. And that is the type of call. All who have been justified have been called, have received that inward call. Notice in verse 28, 
gives credence to this as well. Notice in verse 28, Paul says here, and we know that God causes all things together to work together for the good, those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. He is synonymously here using the word those who are called with Christians. It would not make any sense in the text to say all things work together for the good who have heard the gospel call. He's saying quite the opposite. Now, the next phrase here that we want to look at is that those who have, are called have been predestined. Can we breathe? <laughs> Simply stated, this word predestined means to determine beforehand. And so what God is, what, what Paul is saying is that those who have been called have been determined beforehand. And um, I want to give you something that, uh, uh, a situation that happened to me probably about 15 years ago. I was preaching on a Wednesday night at another church and uh, we were in this section of Romans. And what happened was, is we would take, we would read the scripture, we would take prayer requests, and we would take prayer requests, read the scripture, pray, and then I would start teaching. So here's what happened. Took prayer requests, read the scripture, prayed, started to teach, and hands were up. And uh, I said, yes, you know, Jimmy. It wasn't Jimmy. Yes, Jimmy. Are you saying, I hadn't even opened my mouth yet. <laughs> and uh, it was amazing because there were, there were questions all over the room, and it, uh, accusatory is the wrong word, but they were saying, are you saying, and I'm like, no, 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 no. The Bible is saying, and one of the things about maybe being growing up in a, in, in a church where God's Word isn't taught verse by verse, there are some things that, that, that are left out of the teaching and preaching because they're hard and they're controversial. And this is one of them. So when somebody says, I don't believe in predestination, they're not arguing with Lewis, they're arguing with the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that that solves the problem. Because the next phrase <laughs> creates a problem and creates division. But it's very important that we get this right. Those who have been predestined were foreknown. And, and I, I think for many, um, this idea uh, and this word here, foreknown, simply means to, to, to have been known beforehand. Um, that, that many misconstrue the meaning of this word in this part of the scripture. And I'm, I'm jealous that we don't do that because if we change this word to mean something that it doesn't at this point, the argument that Paul is making, and remember what he's doing is he's grounding this promise of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good. If we, if we unravel this the wrong way here, I think the argument Paul is making about our security and, and our hope and our comfort and struggles that God is doing something unravels. And so let me tell you what is not meant by foreknown, and this is where I may dance on toes because certainly this is what I was taught uh, many, many, many years ago. And I want you to, and then I want to I unpack what the reason why we're saying that it's, or that I'm saying that this is not uh, the right way to look at this in this in this text, in the scripture. What this is not is that you have God back here in this linear time and space 
and he looks forward and sees Lewis sometime in 1990-something make a decision for Christ and then says, oh, okay, I see that Lewis did that. So based upon what happened there, I'm coming back here and now I can say as God, I'm predestining Lewis to salvation. This doesn't work here for at least three reasons, and we're not going to completely unpack this, but the context, the logic, and the language really pushes us against this view. The context being, what is Paul's main point? Paul's point is that God causes all things to work together for the good. Paul is driving home that there is a foundation, and that foundation is God and His sovereignty, and so it doesn't make any sense from the context in my mind that, that that's the way, the way that I was taught would be the way that God lays this out. In my mind, that would unravel this foundation and make it shaky. Secondly, and, and, and like I said, we, we are going to spend more time on this in Romans chapter 9. Gary's going to do a good job with that. Um, the second thing here, logically, is that we know by the very nature of God that God is not constrained by time. God is not on this linear timetable, and so the whole idea of setting the argument up that way doesn't make logically make sense because it's not congruent with who God is. Not only that, but what people are trying to do who make that argument is to let God off the hook, let God off the hook for Uh, bad things happening in the world or uh, some people not being saved. And if we logically think this out, if God is all-powerful, God is still on the hook if He sees into the future that Lewis rejects Him and doesn't do anything about it. In my mind, God's still on the hook for that. So it doesn't solve the problem that people who propose that view are trying to eliminate. So logically, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense here. And thirdly, and most importantly, I think, the language, the the language, if we really get into um, what this word foreknown means, the language leads us to a much different conclusion. And, And I think the easiest way to say this is that as we look at this text, what is God foreknowing? People. It doesn't tell us in the text that God foreknow, God does foreknow events, but in this text, He's saying, those whom God foreknew. And then if we look at this word for know, and we think through, you know, particular in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament, this, this word for know in the Hebrew is used in, in phrases like this, that God knew Israel. Does that mean that God didn't know intellectually the other nations? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means that there was a special relationship. They were known by Him. Other places we run into this same language denotes this case of intimacy. That Adam knew Eve. Now, we know that it's not meaning there that he just knew her intellectually because a baby happened after Adam knew Eve. And if you're confused about that, young ones, ask your parents. Knowing a girl and shaking her hand will not create babies, so you're safe. But there was a type of knowing, an intimacy here. And this is the same word, and and so the best language that I can say to wrap around this 
is that when it's saying that we're known by God, that we're known beforehand by God, it means that He has set His covenantal love upon us. And this really fits with the context that those whom God set His covenantal love upon, those whom He knew in a covenant way beforehand, He predestined. The key here, and let's don't miss this, the key here is that God's promises are true because He is in control. Now, I got to this point. uh, On Sunday mornings, I wake up real early and I pray and I rewrite out my notes because there's something about rewriting notes that make it stick in my head a little bit better. And I'll tell you what happens. I'm about right here. And uh, real early, and so I hear Flannery screaming. That's my three-year-old daughter. She's screaming. So I'm a little frustrated. So I, you know, God works all things together for the good, but I'm frustrated walking up the stairs, right? Uh, and I grab her out of her bed. I shouldn't say grab her. I picked her up out of her bed. She was, that sounded awful. <sighs> so I pick her up out of her bed, and she's scared, and I'm comforting her. And here's what I say to her. I said, what's wrong, sweetheart? I said, did you have a bad dream? Yeah, yeah, a bad dream. And I said, hey, you know daddy won't let anything happen to you. Yeah, and I took her downstairs. And I'm halfway down the stairs. And I realize I can't fulfill that promise. As much as I would want to, if something happened to my sweet little girl in the nursery this morning, right now, I am limited to stop it. The best I can do is to say, sweetheart, I will do everything within my power not to let anything happen to you. But praise be to God. Our God is the sovereign of the universe. And therefore, when God says to us that I am doing something, we can rest assured that that promise is true. Because he's not a finite father like me. He is a sovereign God of the universe. And I want you to see why this is so important and why this is so good and why this is great news. Now, the second thing I want you to see is that in this is that not only is God sovereign and not only is God in control. And and yes, I understand there's a million questions that come from that. And like I said, Gary will answer those later. I just want you to know that this is a bedrock foundational truth. The second thing that I want you to see here this morning. Is what he's doing. He's working. And the the sovereign God of the universe is working things for our good this morning. And that is, we see from the text, look at verse 29. He also predestined those, He also predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. You can also see the the end result um, in verse 30 of He also glorified. And uh, I think what we see here as, as Paul is writing is that you see that, um, as we've talked about, as Gary said a couple weeks ago as he was preaching, that he's already here started this process of, 
us becoming glorified, of us becoming more like His Son, but we are not yet what we will be. And so all things in the life of a believer, God is using to conform us to the image of Christ. He is shaping us. He is molding us into the image of His Son so that, verse 29, so that He, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And the idea here is that we are being conformed. We are being made. We are being chiseled away to be made more like Christ so that when we appear with our Savior, with Jesus, that we will be like Him. And He will be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brethren. He will receive the glory and the honor and the worth and the beauty that He deserves. And this is great news, but I want to say one of the things that I don't think we talk about enough is that when we talk about things like this, about being conformed to the image of Jesus, if we really begin to think about this, a lot of us bristle at this. A lot of us bristle at this. A lot of us don't want to be, if we're really truthful and honest, a lot of us don't want to be conformed into the image of Jesus. We just want to be a better version of who we are. Another way to say this is that we're looking for God in us to restore us to the place that Adam was before the fall in the garden, enjoying the perfect lifestyle and the perfect wife and all these things. But instead, God is saying, I'm giving you something much greater that sometimes we don't think is greater, and that is I'm not conforming you, I'm not changing you back to that, I'm not restoring that edemic state, I'm doing something much greater, I'm conforming you into the image of my Son. And the reason we bristle at this is the same reason that a lot of us didn't like the WWJD bracelets. Because we didn't want to do what Jesus did. We wanted things our way. One pastor said, um, I'm going to make this more G-rated than what this pastor did. It wasn't bad. I'm going to make it more G-rated than what he said. You know, for heaven's sake, Jesus didn't even have a wife. We want to be like Him? The problem, I think, is we truly don't understand who Jesus is. We truly doesn't, don't understand what it means to be one with the Father. To be able to behold the glory of God. To be able to fully depend upon God. To truly find our ultimate and true satisfaction in God. You know, when I understand how dirty and rotten and unworthy I am. And read this verse and says that God is conforming me to the image of His Son. My jaw just drops open. I can't believe it. I'm in awe of that. That God, that you... Are making me like Jesus? Here, at this point, this whole idea of all things, I think, really begins to come 
into view. And I want you to think about this with me just for a little bit. Cancer, the shootings of this past week, death, depression, hardships, trouble. One of the things that happens when we experience these type of things is that the foundation that we're leaning on for our soul satisfaction, if it's something other than Christ, is kicked right out from under us in the middle of these things. Have you ever gotten the joy to sit with a believer who is immensely suffering under cancer treatments and they've come to this place where really all they can say is all I have is Christ? And this realization comes that doesn't come to the rest of us who a lot of times who are just floating through our day and that is, is that not only is all I have is Christ, but it's all I need. It's good. You see, at that moment that God loves us enough to bring things into our world, into our lives, discomfort and pain, hardships and trials. He loves us enough to bring these things into our lives so that we can be taken to a place to where our soul can only be satisfied on the thing in which it was supposed to be satisfied. And we find true joy and true worship in the midst of sorrow and in the midst of pain. This is why. This is why God can say, Paul can write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and say, All things work together for the good who love God. Because He's sovereign and He's good. And I just love, you know, we, I could spend all day talking about this and we could go through the rest of the verses, but let's just, just we're not going to go into verse 31, but I want you to see, I want you to see Paul's vision of God and Paul's vision of what God is doing. Knowing that suffering is in view, in verse 18, I consider the present sufferings of this pleasant time. Later in this chapter, we see suffering again. And notice what Paul says after he talks about these two verses. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you have a vision of God who is this Big and this good. There is a firm foundation. There is a firm foundation for those who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and have come into a saving relationship with God. And I think there are just a couple of implications that I just want to mention briefly here in closing. I think for those whom these verses come alive and I think what these verses do is it, 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 it uh, uh, much like the new pavilion, it provides a sturdy structure that the wind is not going to shake. If you've looked at those beams and those poles and that concrete, it's massive. I mean, God can do whatever He wants. God can flatten it again. And we're done. But these verses provide this firm foundation in our lives that's rock solid and allows us to trust God even in the midst of 
hard and difficult times and gives us security that, that we're in a process. And so even times when we think that we're alienated and far off, that if we know that we've truly put our faith and trust in him, that God is doing something, that even in the desert times, God is doing something, is producing something. And the other thing that I think it does is it. If we understand what this text is saying, it makes us worship like no other because it's taking it all out of our hands and giving it to the creator sovereign of the universe and we worship him as the sovereign good God that he is. And I want to end with why this foundation. And I think God gives us this foundation so that as a platform to be Christians in this world. I do not want to be misunderstood. What we do as Christians is not listen to these verses and say, Amen, so what I'm going to do is just lay on my bed, and God is making me like Jesus here, and I don't have to do anything. Wife, bring me some burgers. That's not what God calls here. God gives us this firm foundation so that we can act, so that we can be the church, so that we can be His bride, so that we can be His beloved in a world that is going to hell so that we carry the gospel message with us as we go here on Signal Mountain or to India or wherever we are. That it's the platform to do that so that we evangelize in a sense of security and on purpose and on mission with confidence that God is at work. This security always leads us to action. Because we know that God is doing something. God is sanctifying us. He is making us more like His Son. In fact, you know, Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Not let God work. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Let's pray.